0: blog
1: talk radio good evening ladies and gentlemen welcome to the husmo black forum here we do it bigger we do it better we do it longer and out of necessity we'll do it louder than anyone out here so relax here's your host husmo black
2: Welcome to the Hushville Black Forum. You got me Hushville driving this train this evening. It's February twenty second, twenty twenty, yeah Yeah, it's coming to the end of Black History Month here. I, I guess we got a month we call it Black History Month. It's February, my birth month, so yeah, I the whole month is mine, yeah. Hey, welcome to the show. while model us to do it bigger, to do it better, to do it longer. And out of necessity, sometimes we'll do it louder than anybody out here on Broad Talk. Yeah? We don't like to get loud, though. We like to keep everything on a even keel. Yeah, we advocate, I say, advocate for social justice on behalf of Americans of African descent. Not because we don't love everybody. No, we do. It's just by extension, we, uh, find ourselves advocating for that community. And Lord knows we need all the advocacy we can get right now, yeah. Hey, some crazy stuff going on. Hey, you got the uh, Nevada caucuses going on today. The Democrats are uh, vying vi- vi- for uh, delegates. They need 1,900 and something to uh, get that uh, nomination, I mean, the many Republicans pulled the uh, pulled their uh, thing off the ballot. They didn't want Trump to have no competition, so they pulled it. That's the craziest thing I've ever seen this uh, anybody who's looking at uh following the politics of what's going on and even if you're not, please do because uh this thing is crazy. You know? we've got an attorney general who has who's got to go. President's got to go uh both of them has uh, really put their fingers on uh the skills of justice that uh threatens the very uh foundation of our legal system here in the country uh, yeah that's it's crazy uh here this couple of days ago uh the president up and fired the uh acting. National security uh director uh because uh his department briefed the Congress as they're legally required to do on Russian interference going on in the twenty twenty presidential election aimed at benefiting Donald Trump hey. <laughs> The Intelligence Committee of both the House and the Senate has a right to know all shenanigans like that that the security agencies uh, come across. They have an obligation to fill the Congress in on it so they can protect uh, our democracy. Y'all. That's just the law. Uh the president didn't like it. He, he fired somebody for doing their job uh, protecting the citizens. And we can't have that. I mean, anybody, not, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about a Democrat or Republican or Independent or none of that. I'm talking about an American citizen. Any American citizen has got to be opposed to uh, the Attorney General and the President skewing, the rule of law. Yeah, it. You know, it, it could be you. Hey, suppose they get on. Uh, you get on the wrong side of the president by waking up this morning on the wrong side of the bed, and uh, one of them doesn't like it, and they turn the whole Justice Department against you. The president's about pardoning Roger Stone. I found guilty of seven felonies. I don't know how many he was found guilty of, but he pled guilty to a few, or at least he was. Now he found he was found guilty of lying to the Congress and uh, uh, intimidating witnesses and the like, and could have got nine years and probably should have. Although I won't uh, wish time in jail on no one. He did get forty months, and. uh, the president is talking about uh, pardoning him. <laughs> Can you imagine the president coming out talking about pardoning uh, his friends and uh, sicking the uh, <laughs> Justice Department on uh, his enemies? Is that scary? His political opponents, uh, he sick the Justice Department on them at his whim. Uh, something's wrong with that, folks. Yeah, hey, uh, we're gonna we got a great show for you this evening. This is seven o'clock in ATL, a little after uh, seven here in ATL. Beautiful weekend. Yeah, we got a great show coming up for you tonight. We're gonna be talking these next two weekends this today and next week seven well two twenty nine. We're gonna pretty much delve into uh black history, our history here in the Country in America, which is you know we're indigenous to the history of this country. Was we'll here when they fought the revolution, y'all. My people was here in Georgia when they fought the revolution. Hey, <laughs> no doubt. Uh, so yeah, if you you might say that uh, I'm indigenous to the uh, United States <laughs> of America. Yeah, I was here when they. All well, my people was here when they fought the revolution, yeah. No doubt. So I <laughs> Oh yeah, ready in Georgia. My great 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 grandmother was born here in Georgia in seventeen eighty four in Troop County. Yeah, down around the Grange, y'all. She's born right there in eighteen seventy four. Now 1784 uh, seventeen uh, uh eighty four. That's my great 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 grandmother with her people. uh, uh No doubt, tracing the history of uh, the Cameron clan from Scotland, Uh, they arrived here in uh, uh, 1752. And no doubt, uh, my people uh, arrived uh, either with them or shortly thereafter. So, yeah. I can trace it, but I got a direct line back to 1784 uh, prior to the Constitution being uh, finalized. And uh, yeah, six, seven generations I go back direct uh here in this country yeah so i can uh i've got a lot of history i've got a lot of history oh my dna come from nigeria the Yoruba folks but uh i'm in business to the united states of america because my family was here uh my people was here when uh, they were fighting that revolution yeah, trying to break away from a tyrant uh much like <laughs> much like uh this guy we got in office today. Hey, I'm just saying, yeah. Uh but we gonna we're gonna get into some black history. Hey the uh, one thing, uh the Mardi Gras down in New Orleans, part of our history. Uh, just ended. You know, that's always a wild time, y'all. The Mardi Gras with the uh uh um Different clans <laughs> the, uh the uh, uh, they've got all kinds of uh, parades and stuff uh the zulu clan uh they got the bands and great music great great music' y'all. I mean, if you all ever been to New Orleans check it out i urge everyone to check it out at least once I've been so many times. it's crazy, but I love it. <laughs> before a getaway just to party and take uh, partake in the uh, culture that's our culture too yeah, that's part of our culture uh, I'm going to play a, I'm going to crank up a few tunes yeah. New Orleans uh, produced some of the greatest uh, jazz musicians uh, yeah but uh, yeah. Uh the likes of Louis Armstrong, uh Alan Tucson, uh the Mar- Marcellus family, the Neville families, uh uh Al Giroux, uh uh Joe Sample, uh all them boys from New Orleans around that way. Lil Wayne. <laughs> you don't do those. No. Lil Wayne. Wayne don't do much jazz, but he probably could. He's challenging enough, but he's a rapper, but he's a new Orleans in person. Uh, but Louis Armstrong, now people were down on him for years for some reason because he didn't really play that much in front of a black audience. He couldn't. He couldn't make no living playing in front of a black audience. not his music, so he played in front of a lot of rich white folks throughout his career, but he's talking about a person with talent. Uh, he blew a horn and sang and you know was just all around entertainer uh, I don't think I've ever seen him tap dance <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen Sashmo tap tap dance but he, he probably could uh, <laughs> but uh, this guy this guy did more with a horn uh, he was way before Miles Davis and all them boys but uh, Louis Armstrong he he did more with a horn than uh, uh you know, everybody that came after him that blew a horn was uh uh inspired by, uh by Louis Lewis Armstrong, y'all. I mean, y'all uh, this is just uh one of his pieces right here that I like. Check this out. That was Mason street blues. This is for black history month, yeah. Hey, hey, y'all. That's Louis Armstrong, y'all. And this band of all stars, uh, circa. Sometime in the 40s, y'all. Louis <laughs> Armstrong was getting down like that in the 40s, y'all. Hey. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Louis has something for you. I, you know, I mean, he, he, uh, Let's see, I, I got another piece by him. I, I just uh, thought I'd give you a little sample of his his range. Uh, hmm. Yeah, that's a little a little bit of a, a Louis Sessman Armstrong, yeah. Great, great American musician. Yeah, from New Orleans. Louis Armstrong, yeah. That was just a sample. I mean, this guy's got... This guy's got
1: stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah. That was some of his vocal stuff. I didn't really get into it. It's just uh instrumental pieces, but this guy uh is quite a talent, yeah. It's quite a quite a talent. For Black History Month. We uh give you Louis Armstrong. Yeah. Hey, uh what time is it, y'all? It's about uh seven thirty. Seven thirty in the ATL, yeah. We're gonna take a quick pause for the calls. We do got a call in one eight 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 five eight eight three eight one four. Got a free call in to the Hushma Black Forum. We we're just doing a little black history this month. We ain't talking too much politics, although we do have a uh a uh primary caucus going on in Nevada today. Uh I I don't know. I ain't got no What's in that fight yet? I know who I'm supporting. I don't know I'm going to let it all flesh out. I really believe that, uh, <laughs> well, I ain't going to say. We just got to do a little black history. We ain't going to get into too much politics tonight. Other than uh, we know what we need to do on November 3rd. <laughs> we need to we need to uh, go uh, vote in St. House, y'all. The country's in trouble. This country's in trouble, yeah. So but we to we're gonna leave that alone tonight for the most part, but uh this country's in trouble. Yeah. Uh Black History Month, February twenty twenty, yeah. This is the twenty second of February here. Got one more week of February. Next week will be our last show of the Black History Month. The 29th we'll be with you, uh at seven PM, we're gonna uh, get into some more Black history. Uh, I don't know. It started here, I guess. We're talking about our history in this country, they they kind of uh, always point to the year of uh, sixteen nineteen uh, at the uh, Jamestown settlement in Virginia as uh, one of the earliest recorded histories of blacks uh, coming to the country, although they was here before then. They was here before then, you know? Oh, yeah. But uh, just, uh, 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 for history's sake, uh, John Roth uh, reported in his uh, journal that on August 20th, Uh, there came a Dutch man of war that sold some 20 Negroes. The first Negroes in the English North America colonies, uh, as was reported by John Roth. Like I said, there was blacks in this on these shores uh, prior to that. Uh, We're going to use that Debt year, August 20, and and uh, bring out history for it from there. In uh, uh, 1621, the Dutch West Indies Company was organized with a monopoly of both the um, African trade and trade with the Dutch colonies in the New World. Uh, this company, which was uh, more or less a slave company, a slave trading company uh, uh, of Holland, I suppose, the Dutch. The company then challenged the right of the Portuguese uh, to trade on the coast of Africa. And by 1650, the Dutch had a stranglehold there following the English Civil War. England tried to close the slave trade to the Dutch. Uh, in Cartagena, a Spanish land point in Colombia, Spanish law forbid Negroes or mulattos even if accompanied by their masters to bear arms without a license. This is just a little history. I'm reading this book here, A, a Negro History. The Negro in America, Chronological History of the Negro in America by Peter Bergman. It's a great uh, collection of uh, research that this guy put together. It kind of gives you a little chronological uh, history. started roughly around 1619, like I said, but uh, that's the way this book starts at. Uh, There was a black folk American uh, people of African descent was here on this continent uh, way before sixteen nineteen. Yep, there's a book entitled uh, They Came Before the Mayflower." You might want to check that out and uh, give some more, uh, uh, some more uh, history on uh, what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's a book. Uh, they came before the May- uh, Mayflower by Ivan van Sertima. Cert- they came before Columbus is the name of it They came before columbus uh by Ivan van certima uh give you some insight as to when uh, uh people of backward descent showed up on uh showed up on these shores and I mean it go back to six hundred b c before oh yeah i'm talking serious <laughs> some serious uh uh, history, uh, they came before Columbus. Ivan Van Satima. Uh, a little block history we're trying to get into and share it with you this evening on the Hushmo Black Forum. Hey, uh, you got to be Hushmo driving this train this evening. Y'all, uh, welcome to the show. Facebook friends, what's up? Y'all, I'm awfully awful quiet today. What's going on? uh 20 minutes to 8, you yeah, We're going to take a quick pause for the call. We've been rambling on. and haven't had a chance to break yet, yeah. We'll be right back. You got me, Hushmo, driving this train.
1: Advocating on your behalf, you're listening to the Hushmo Black Forum. Tell your friends about us. Saturdays, 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. Right here in cyberspace.
2: Hey you uh, welcome back. Welcome back to the National Black Forum. It's February 22nd, y'all, 2020. Uh, the new year is moving. Y'all. This new year is moving. We got about eight more months to <laughs> the election, the election of a new president, y'all. It can't get here too soon, y'all. I just hope to, and pray that uh, the the country survive. Till November the third. Uh, whatever y'all do. Uh get out and vote. Uh become politically active and uh um, bone up on your on your uh, politics, uh pay attention to what's going on. Uh, on Tyranny by Timothy Snyder is a great little book. I want everybody to pick that book up. On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. It's a great, great re uh uh, on the workings of a democracy or the uh the uh it's a guide a little guide for citizens uh who occupy a democracy and how uh they are to act in order to maintain uh uh their democracy on tyranny um uh, I'm I'm going to key up chapter 8, stand out. There's Timothy Snyder. Y'all check this
0: out. Someone has to. It is easy to follow along. It can feel strange to do or say something different. But without that unease, there is no freedom. Remember Rosa Parks. The moment you set an example, the spell of the status quo is broken and others will follow. After the Second World War, Europeans, Americans, and others created myths of righteous resistance to Hitler. In the 1930s, however, the dominant attitudes had been accommodation and admiration. By 1940, most Europeans had made their peace with the seemingly irresistible power of Nazi Germany. Influential Americans, such as Charles Lindbergh, opposed war with the Nazis under the slogan, America first. It is those who were considered exceptional, eccentric, and even insane in their own time, those who did not change when the world around them did, whom we remember and admire today. Well before the Second World War, numerous European states had abandoned democracy for some form of right-wing authoritarianism. Italy became the first fascist state in 1922 and was a military ally of Germany. Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria have been drawn toward Germany by the promise of trade and territory. In March 1938, none of the great powers offered any resistance as Germany annexed Austria. In September 1938, the great powers, France, Italy, and Great Britain, then led by Neville Chamberlain, actually cooperated with Nazi Germany in the partition of Czechoslovakia. In summer 1939, the Soviet Union allied with Nazi Germany, and the Red Army joined the Wehrmacht in the invasion of Poland. The Polish government chose to fight, activating agreements that brought Great Britain and France into the war. Germany, supplied with food and fuel by the Soviet Union, invaded and quickly occupied Norway, the Netherlands, Belgium, and even France in the spring of 1940. The remainder of the British Expeditionary Force was evacuated from the continent at Dunkirk in late May and early June 1940. When Winston Churchill became Prime Minister in May 1940, Great Britain was alone. The British had won no meaningful battles and had no important allies. They had entered the war to support Poland, a cause that seemed lost. Nazi Germany and its Soviet ally dominated the continent. The Soviet Union had invaded Finland in November 1939, beginning with a bombing of Helsinki. Right after Churchill assumed office, the Soviet Union occupied and annexed the three Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. The United States had not entered the war. Adolf Hitler had no special animus toward Britain or its empire, and indeed imagined a division of the world into spheres of interest. He expected Churchill to come to terms after the fall of France. Churchill did not. He told the French that whatever you may do, we shall fight on forever and ever, and ever. In June 1940, Churchill told the British Parliament that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. The German Luftwaffe began the bombing of British cities. Hitler expected that this would force Churchill to sign an armistice, but he was mistaken. Churchill later called the air campaign a time when it was equally good to live or die. He spoke of the buoyant and imperturbable temper of Britain, Which I had the honor to express. In fact, he himself helped the British to define themselves as a proud people who would calmly resist evil. Other politicians would have found support in British public opinion to end the war. Churchill instead resisted, inspired, and won. The Royal Air Force, including two Polish squadrons and a number of other foreign pilots, held back the Luftwaffe. Without control of the air, Even Hitler could not imagine an amphibious assault on Great Britain. Churchill did what others had not done. Rather than concede in advance, he forced Hitler to change his plans. The essential German strategy had been to remove any resistance in the West and then to invade, thus betraying the Soviet Union and colonize its Western territories. In June 1941, with Britain still in the war, Germany attacked its Soviet ally. Now Berlin had to fight a two-front war. Moscow and London were suddenly unexpected allies. In December 1941, Japan bombed the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, and the United States entered the war. Now Moscow, Washington, and London formed a grand and irresistible coalition. Together, and with the help of many other allies, these three great powers won the Second World War. But had Churchill not kept Britain in the war in 1940, there would have been no such war to fight. Churchill said that history would be kind to him because he intended to write it himself. But in his vast histories and memoirs, he presented his own decisions as self-evident and credited the British people and Britain's allies. Today, what Churchill did seems normal and right. But at the time, he had to stand out. Of course, Great Britain was only in the war because the Polish leadership had chosen to fight in September 1939. Open Polish armed resistance was overcome that October. In 1940, the character of the German occupation was becoming clear in the Polish capital, Warsaw. Teresa Prekarova was meant to... Churchill did what others had not done. Rather than concede in advance, he forced Hitler to change his plans the essential German strategy had been to remove any resistance in the West and then to invade, thus betraying the Soviet Union and colonize its Western territories. In June 1941, with Britain still in the war, Germany attacked its Soviet ally. Now Berlin had to fight a two-front war, and Moscow and London were suddenly unexpected allies. In December 1941, Japan bombed the American naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and the United States entered the war. Now Moscow, Washington, and London formed a grand and irresistible coalition. Together, and with the help of many other allies, these three great powers won the Second World War. But had Churchill not kept Britain in the war in 1940, there would have been no such war to fight. Churchill said that history would be kind to him because he intended to write it himself. But in his vast histories and memoirs, he presented his own decisions as self-evident and credited the British people and Britain's allies. Today, what Churchill did seems normal and right, but at the time, he had to stand out. Of course, Great Britain was only in the war because the Polish leadership had chosen to fight in September 1939. Open Polish armed resistance was overcome that October. In 1940, the character of the German occupation was becoming clear in the Polish capital, Warsaw. Teresa Prekarova, was meant to finish high school that year. Her family lost its property to the Germans and was forced to move to Warsaw and rent. Her father was arrested. One of her uncles was killed in battle. Two of her brothers were in German prisoner of war camps. Warsaw itself had been heavily damaged by a German air campaign, which had killed about 25,000 people. Teresa, a very young woman, Stood out among her friends and family in her reaction to this horror. At a time when it was natural to think only of oneself, she thought of others. In late 1940, the Germans began to establish ghettos in the part of Poland under their control. That October, the Jews of Warsaw and the surrounding region were required to move to a certain district of the city. One of Teresa's brothers had been friendly with the Jewish girl and her family before the war. Teresa now observed that people quietly allowed their Jewish friends to slip away from their lives. Without telling her family, and at great risk to herself, Teresa chose to enter the Warsaw Ghetto a dozen times in late 1940, bringing food and medicine to Jews she knew and Jews she did not. By the end of the year, she had persuaded her brother's friend to escape the ghetto. In 1942, Teresa helped the girl's parents and brother to escape. That summer in the Warsaw Ghetto the Germans carried out what they called the Great Action, deporting some 265,040 Jews to the death factory at Treblinka to be murdered and killing another 10,380 Jews in the ghetto itself. Teresa saved a family from certain death. Teresa Prakarova later became a historian of the Holocaust, writing about the Warsaw Ghetto and about others who helped to aid Jews. But she preferred not to write about herself. When, much later, she was asked to speak about her own life, she called her actions normal. From our perspective, her actions were exceptional. She stood out. Lesson 9. Be kind to our language. Avoid
2: pronouncing... Hey, you a little of uh, On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. It's a heavy, heavy read. Uh, it's only about 150... 150- 150 pages, I believe. But it it speaks to uh, what's needed in a democracy if uh, you are to maintain it uh, and uh, uh, keep tyrants at bay. Uh, Tyrants uh, like uh, what we have here in this country, the making of a tyrant or or a would-be tyrant, uh, and this president that we have. But it it talks about uh, the citizens paying attention, getting involved uh, in their uh, in their uh, in their society uh, in a political way. Uh, Just a great, great read. That was just uh, chapter eight of that book. I mean, it's I play try to play a chapter here on the air for my listeners. Uh, It's a great informative. Piece of work by Timothy Snyder. I urge everybody to pick that book up uh, on tyranny. Hey, y'all, it's September. <laughs>
1: it's
2: February, y'all, Black History Month. Why did I get September from you? It's uh, Black History Month here. Uh, February the 22nd. You don't know who started Black History Month? Carla G. Wilson. Carla G. Wilson uh, was the author of the miseducation of the Negro. Back in the 1930s, uh, he started, uh, back then, I think it was like a day, a Black History Day. He thought it would be a good idea to set aside and celebrate uh, uh, our history in this country. Uh, but uh, somehow it evolved into the month that uh, is celebrated uh, today. um uh, prior to that we played a little uh selection of uh Louis Armstrong Louis Satchmo Armstrong, great American musician out of New Orleans, uh, who's who uh represent uh uh who I don't know I guess one city I don't know if there's another city stamped uh, their uh uh imprint on uh, American jazz, quite like New Orleans, y'all. Uh, I am I just love some of the music that come out of that place. Hey, y'all, we're going to take a quick break for the, for the call, see if we can pay some bills. I got somebody holding on the line. We'll try to get to them and see what they want. Uh, but y'all hang in there. We'll be right
1: back. You got me Hushville driving this train this evening. Advocated on your behalf,
2: to call in uh, call and suggest that we should talk about trading our black kids to run away. I don't know. He didn't have much to say about the predators that are killing them. But he wanted our kids to <laughs> turn tail and run away. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. I was in the Marine Corps, y'all. Uh, we... We tried to make a stand, uh whenever we could. We didn't just that was some occasions where we had to uh retreat. The Chosen Frozen uh come to mind. That's the Korean conflict, uh when we was caught up in that thing over there in North Korea. Uh some twenty thousand Marines was up on the border up there in the Chosin Reservoir on uh, the border with uh, China. China sent some 200,000 soldiers across that border, y'all, to uh, uh, attack uh, 20,000 Marines. We had to retreat. It was, you know, 19 below zero. <laughs> and 200,000 uh, Chinese come across the, uh, the border up there in that uh Reservoir, y'all. We had to get up out of there. Now that you know, in situations like that, yeah, you wanna uh, you want to uh uh pull back. Uh but uh in the course of uh uh ordinary circumstances, uh we shouldn't I guess shouldn't have to run. He he brought up Trayvon Martin but our kids shouldn't have to run, uh, from anybody. Uh we need to uh get the predators to leave our kids alone. And uh yeah. But anyway, that's, that was a call on the line. He thought it'd be interesting to uh put that forth to our, our mind listening audience, uh, that uh, somehow we should uh Somehow we should uh, teach our kids to uh just turn tail and run at the first danger of somebody uh, <laughs> uh taking away their uh liberty. Just turn tail and run, yeah. Hey uh it's february twenty second, yeah. Twenty twenty. Yeah, black history month. We we're trying to uh, get into a little black history here for you all. Uh, and then I uh, got into uh, this own tyranny, which is such a fabulous read. I, I, those are the type of things that I, I want to instill in my keys, uh to be uh, active in uh, the politics of uh, our society, keep abreast of what's going on, speak out, uh 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 when you uh see something that's not uh cautious, speak out about it yeah you know? uh right now the country's in trouble in big big trouble you know I, it's just it's just um, it's almost unbelievable what's going on with the government this guy's just fired his national security advisor, put somebody in that has no uh, national security uh, uh, experience at all, some refugee from uh, the German embassy, some some craziness. Uh, This guy is just uh, putting the country's uh, uh, safety at risk uh, with some of his shenanigans. Yeah. We got to get this guy out of here before we destroy uh, the entire uh, apparatus that we have set up. Yeah. Before you destroy the whole apparatus, because once you destroy that thing, it's just like Humpty Dumpty falling off the wall. Y'all trying to put Humpty back together again can be is going to be uh, quite a challenge for the next uh, for the next president. May take two to uh, get things back together again, and part of that has to do with the citizens, uh, not becoming uh, apathetic uh to uh what's going on, yeah, part of it has to do with the citizens becoming uh uh, uh too relaxed uh, in their uh, comfort zone uh this guy on swept in talking about what are you doing for <laughs> other people he ain't doing nothing y'all. this guy's a uh this guy's a con guy. This guy's a I would say he's a a uh born to be a mafia boss, but he's just he's not sharp enough to be that. So <laughs> he's nowhere near sharp enough to be that, yeah. Uh I don't know. But uh, anyway, we've got a Michael Bloomberg uh, was mentioned in this call off the air. Bloomberg uh might wind up as the uh, Democratic nominee, uh if uh, although Joe Biden had a pretty strong debate uh Wednesday. I you know, uh but Bloomberg has got uh I'm just reading here uh, a chronological history of the Negro in America. Here, uh, I tell you, this guy put together a little, uh, a bunch of facts that he dug up out of the Library of Congress, and kind of put it in a book. Uh, it goes from like 1619 all the way up to uh, what's the last year he got in this thing? Yeah, let's see. I don't know where he stopped at. I guess he go up to. Uh, 1966 looks like. It's kind of interesting, uh, and he does it by years to kind of highlight what happened to say in 1874 in and, and black history. It says, By the year in Georgia, Negroes owed more than or owned more than 350,000 acres of land. Now, just Hearing that number, you'd think that was, wow, that's a lot of. Frederick Douglass was elected president of the Freeman's Savings and Trust Company. The bank failed uh, that very same year, by the way. Charleston, branch, a branch of uh, the Freeman's Savings and Trust Company, owed over $250,000 to 5,296 depositors. The Beaufort, South Carolina branch owed to 1200 depositors some $77,000. Blanche K. Bruce from Mississippi, a Negro, was chosen by the Republican caucus to run for the Senate. He received 52 of 80 votes. He was elected on February 3rd against very weak opposition. Three Democratic State Senators voted for him. Governor Ames, a Republican, dismissed ex US Senator H.R. Revels from his position as president of Alcorn College. The Democratic Party regained control of Alabama, Arkansas, and Texas. This is nineteen sixty. This is 1874, y'all. These are all the things that are happening in the country pertaining to America's African descent. Uh, Virginia again reapportioned its election districts, further minimizing the Negro vote. It also abolished the new England township system, thus taking control of local government Out of Negro Hands. (laughs) William Wells Brown published The Rising Sun. William Wells Brown published the rising sun in eighteen seventy four. Justin Holland, a negro, published his comprehensive method for the guitar. A Long-Standard Work. Justin Holland, a Negro, published his comprehensive method for the guitar. They said it was a standard in teaching uh, guitar lessons for uh, some period of time. I have to check it out. I bought a couple of... Y'all don't know, the husband bought a couple of guitars (laughs) a few years ago. I was going to teach myself how to play and then. I something I came down with some <laughs> health issues and uh, couldn't uh, never did get to it. Now I got pretty much two new guitars that I'm trying to figure out what to do with. Uh, I might put them on eBay and just uh, sell them off, you know Anybody need an electric guitar? I got an electric one. Then I've got a uh, a uh, just a plain. Playing guitar that uh, it's not electric, but it's good for playing. Anybody need a guitar? Get a hush ring. We'll see what we can do. Here's a little. Here's a little interesting history. In 1875. B.K. Bruce of Mississippi served in the U.S. Senate from 1875 to 1881. He was the only Negro during Reconstruction to serve a regular term in the Senate. That's B.K. Bruce. Remember, he was appointed in 1874. I guess he took office in 1875 and served full six years for Mississippi. Yeah. 1875. The following seven Negroes were elected to the 44th Congress as representatives. J.R. Lynch, Mississippi. J.T. Walls of Florida. Jeremiah Harrelson, Alabama. John A. Hyman, North Carolina. Charles E. Nash, Louisiana. J. H. Rainey and Robert Smalls of South Carolina. So we had seven Negroes elected to the Congress there, y'all, in 1875. This is pretty much after uh, Reconstruction had all but ended. It was ended that year. Let's see when they credit it. Hey, y'all. Uh, we, uh, just perusing through this. Let me uh, key up uh something for you here while we uh let's queue up. It's another chapter of own um, tyranny that I want you to hear. That's really uh. Chapter 11, investigate things that uh, you hear and that you're not sure about. Investigate them for yourself. Then investigate.
0: Figure things out for yourself. Spend more time with long articles. Subsidize investigative journalism by subscribing to print media. Realize that some of what is on the Internet is there to harm you. Learn about sites that investigate propaganda campaigns some of which come from abroad. Take responsibility for what you communicate with others. What is truth? Sometimes people ask this question because they wish to do nothing. Generic cynicism makes us feel hip and alternative even as we slip along with our fellow citizens into a morass of indifference. It is your ability to discern facts that makes you an individual and our collective trust in common knowledge that makes us a society. The individual who investigates is also the citizen who builds. The leader who dislikes the investigators is a potential tyrant. During his campaign, the president claimed on a Russian propaganda outlet that American media has been unbelievably dishonest. He banned many reporters from his rallies and regularly elicited hatred of journalists from the public. Like the leaders of authoritarian regimes, He promised to suppress freedom of speech by laws that would prevent criticism. Like Hitler, the president used the word lies to mean statements of fact not to his liking and presented journalism as a campaign against himself. The president was on friendlier terms with the Internet, his source for erroneous information that he passed on to millions of people. In 1971, contemplating the lies told in the United States about the Vietnam War, The political theorist Hannah Arendt took comfort in the inherent power of facts to overcome falsehoods in a free society. Under normal circumstances, the liar is defeated by reality, for which there is no substitute. No matter how large the tissue of falsehood that an experienced liar has to offer, it will never be large enough, even if he enlists the help of computers, to cover the immensity of factuality. The part about computers is no longer true. In the 2016 presidential election, the two-dimensional world of the Internet was more important than the three-dimensional world of human contact. People going door-to-door to to canvas encountered the surprised blinking of American citizens who realized that they would have to talk about politics with a flesh-and-blood human being rather than having their views affirmed by their Facebook feeds. Within the two-dimensional Internet world, new collectivities have arisen, invisible by the light of day. Tribes with distinct worldviews, beholden to manipulations. And yes, there is a conspiracy that you can find online. It's the one to keep you online looking for conspiracies. We need print journalists so that stories can develop on the page and in our minds. What does it mean, for example, that the president says that women belong at home, that pregnancy is an inconvenience, that mothers do not give 100% at work, that women should be punished for having abortions, that women are slobs, pigs, or dogs, and that it is permissible to sexually assault them? What does it mean that six of the president's companies have gone bankrupt and that the president's enterprises have been financed by mysterious infusions of cash from entities in Russia and Kazakhstan? We can learn these things on various media. When we learn them from a screen, however, we tend to be drawn in by the logic of spectacle. When we learn of one scandal, it whets our appetite for the next. Once we subliminally accept that we are watching a reality show rather than thinking about real life, no image can actually hurt the president politically. Reality television must become more dramatic with each episode. If we found a video of the president performing Cossack dances while Vladimir Putin claps, we would probably just demand the same thing with the president wearing a bear suit and holding rubles in his mouth. The better print journalists allow us to consider the meaning for ourselves and our country of what might otherwise seem to be isolated bits of information. But while anyone can repost an article, researching and writing is hard work that requires time and money. Before you deride the mainstream media, note that it is no longer the mainstream. It is derision that is mainstream and easy, and actual journalism that is edgy and difficult. So try for yourself to write a proper article involving work in the real world, traveling, interviewing, maintaining relationships with sources, researching in written records, verifying everything, writing and revising drafts, all on a tight and unforgiving schedule. If you find you like doing this, keep a blog. In the meantime, give credit to those who do all of that for a living. Journalists are not perfect any more than people in other vocations are perfect but the work of people who adhere to journalistic ethics is of a different quality than the work of those who do not. We find it natural that we pay for a plumber or a mechanic, but demand our news for free. If we did not pay for plumbing or auto repair, we would not expect to drink water or drive cars. Why then should we form our political judgment on the basis of zero investment? We get what we pay for. If we do pursue the facts, the internet gives us enviable power to convey them, the authorities cited here had nothing of the kind. Leszek Kołakowski, the great Polish philosopher and historian, lost his chair at Warsaw University for speaking out against the communist regime and could not publish. The first quotation in this book from Hannah Arendt came from a pamphlet entitled, We Refugees, a miraculous achievement written by someone who had escaped a murderous Nazi regime. A brilliant mind like Victor Klemperer, much admired today, is remembered only because he stubbornly kept a hidden diary under Nazi rule. For him, it was sustenance. My diary was my balancing pole, without which I would have fallen down a thousand times. Václav Havel, the most important thinker among the communist dissidents of the 1970s, dedicated his most important essay, The Power of the Powerless, to a philosopher who died shortly after interrogation by the Czechoslovak communist secret police. In communist Czechoslovakia, this pamphlet had to be circulated illegally in a few copies, as what East Europeans at the time, following the Russian dissidents, called Samizdat. If the main pillar of the system is living a lie, wrote Havel, then it is not surprising that the fundamental threat to it is living in truth. Since in the age of the internet, we are all publishers Each of us bears some private responsibility for the public sense of truth. If we are serious about seeking the facts, we can each make a small revolution in the way the internet works. If you are verifying information for yourself, you will not send on fake news to others. If you choose to follow reporters whom you have reason to trust, you can also transmit what they have learned to others. If you retweet only the work of humans who have followed journalistic protocols, You are less likely to debase your brain interacting with bots and trolls. We do not see the minds that we hurt when we publish falsehoods, but that does not mean we do no harm. Think of driving a car. We may not see the other driver, but we know not to run into his car. We know that the damage will be mutual. We protect the other person without seeing him dozens of times every day. Likewise, although we may not see the other person in front of his or her computer, we have our share of responsibility for what he or she is reading there. If we can avoid doing violence to the minds of unseen others on the internet, others will learn to do the same. And then perhaps our internet traffic will cease to look like one great bloody accident. Lesson 12, make eye contact and small talk. This is not just polite. It is part of being a citizen and a responsible member of society. It is also a way to stay in touch with your surroundings, break down social barriers, and understand whom you should and should not trust. If we enter a culture of denunciation, you will want to know the psychological landscape of your daily life. Tyrannical regimes arose at different times and places in the Europe of the 20th century, but memoirs of their victims all share a single tender moment. Whether the recollection is of fascist Italy in the 1920s, of Nazi Germany in the 1930s, of the Soviet Union during the Great Terror of 1937 to 1938, or of the purges in communist Eastern Europe in the 1940s and 1950s, people who were living in fear of repression remembered how their neighbors treated them. A smile, a handshake, or a word of greeting, banal gestures in a normal situation, took on great significance. When friends, colleagues, and acquaintances looked away or crossed the street to avoid contact, fear grew. You might not be sure today or tomorrow who feels threatened in the United States, but if you affirm everyone, you can be sure that certain people will feel better. In the most dangerous of times, those who escape and survive generally know people whom they can trust. Having old friends is the politics of last resort, and making new ones is the first step toward change. Lesson 13. Practice corporeal politics. Power wants your body softening in your chair and your emotions dissipating on the screen. Get outside. Put your body in unfamiliar places with unfamiliar people. Make new friends and march with them. For resistance to succeed, two boundaries must be crossed. First, Ideas about change must engage people of various backgrounds who do not agree about everything. Second, people must find themselves in places that are not their homes and among groups who were not previously their friends. Protests can be organized through social media, but nothing is real that does not end on the streets. If tyrants feel no consequences for their actions in the three-dimensional world, nothing will change. The one example of successful resistance to communism was the Solidarity Labor Movement in Poland in 1980 and 1981, a coalition of workers and professionals, elements of the Roman Catholic Church, and secular groups. Its leaders had learned hard lessons under communism. In 1968, the regime mobilized workers against students who protested. In 1970, when a strike in Gdańsk on the Baltic coast was bloodily suppressed, it was the workers' turn to feel isolated. In 1976, however, intellectuals and professionals formed a group to assist workers who had been abused by the government. These were people from both the right and the left, believers and atheists, who created trust among workers, people whom they would otherwise not have met. When Polish workers on the Baltic coast went on strike again in 1980, they were joined by lawyers, scholars, and others who helped them make their case, was their creation of a free labor union as well as government guarantees to observe human rights. During the 16 months that Solidarity was legal, 10 million people joined, and countless new friendships were created amid strikes, marches, and demonstrations. The Polish communist regime put down the movement with martial law in 1981. Yet eight years later, in 1989, when they needed a negotiating partner, the communists had to turn to Solidarity. The labor union insisted on elections, which it then won. This was the beginning of the end of communism in Poland, Eastern Europe, and the Soviet Union. The choice to be in public depends on the ability to maintain a private sphere of life. We are only free when it is we ourselves who draw the line between when we are seen and when we are not seen. Lesson 14. Establish a private life. Nastier rulers will use what they know about you to push you around. Scrub your computer of malware on a regular basis. Remember that email is skywriting. Consider using alternative forms of the internet or simply using it less. Have personal exchanges in person. For the same reason, resolve any legal trouble. Tyrants seek the hook on which to hang you. Try not to have hooks. What the great political thinker Hannah Arendt meant by totalitarianism was not an all-powerful state. But the erasure of the difference between private and public life. We are free only insofar as we exercise control over what people know about us and in what circumstances they come to know it. Campaign of 2016, we took a step towards totalitarianism without even noticing, by accepting as normal the violation of electronic privacy. Whether it is done by American or Russian intelligence agencies, or for that matter by any institution, the theft discussion or publication of personal communications destroys a basic foundation of our rights. If we have no control over who reads what and when we have no ability to act in the present or plan for the future. Whoever can pierce your privacy can humiliate you and disrupt your relationships at will. No one except perhaps a tyrant has a private life that can survive public exposure by hostile directive. The timed email bombs of the 2016 presidential campaign were also a powerful form of disinformation. Words written in one situation make sense only in that context. The very act of removing them from their historical moment and dropping them into another is an act of falsification. What's worse, when media followed the email bombs as if they were news, they betrayed their own mission. Few journalists made an effort to explain why people said or wrote the things they did at the time. Meanwhile, in transmitting the privacy violations as news, the media allowed themselves to be distracted from the actual events of the day. Rather than reporting the violation of basic rights, our media generally preferred to mindlessly indulge the inherently salacious interest we have in other people's affairs. Our appetite for the secret, thought Arendt, is dangerously political. Totalitarianism removes the difference between private and public, not just to make individuals unfree, but also to draw the whole society away from normal politics and towards conspiracy theories. Rather than defining facts or generating interpretations, we are seduced by the notion of hidden realities and dark conspiracies that explain everything. As we learn from these email bombs, this mechanism works Even when what is revealed is of no interest, the revelation of what was once confidential becomes the story itself. It is striking that news media are much worse at this than, say, fashion or sports reporters. Fashion reporters know that models are taking off their clothes in the changing rooms, and sports reporters know that athletes shower in the locker room, but neither allow private matters to supplant the public story they are supposed to be covering. When we take an active interest in matters of doubtful relevance at moments that are chosen by tyrants and spooks, we participate in the demolition of our own political order. To be sure, we might feel that we are doing nothing more than going along with everyone else. This is true, and it is what Arendt described as the devolution of a society into a mob. We can try to solve this problem individually by securing our own computers. We can also try to solve it collectively by supporting, for example, organizations that are concerned with human rights. Lesson 15, contribute to good causes. Be active in organizations, political or not, press your own view of life. Pick a charity or two and set up auto pay. Then you will have made a free choice that supports civil society and helps others to do good. It is gratifying to know that whatever the course of events You are helping others to do good. Many of us can afford to support some part of the vast network of charities that one of our former presidents called a thousand points of light. These points of light are best seen, like stars at dusk, against the darkening sky. When Americans think of freedom, we usually imagine a contest between a lone individual and a powerful government. We tend to conclude that the individual should be empowered and the government kept at bay. This is all well and good, but one element of freedom, is the choice of associates, and one defense of freedom is the activity of groups to sustain their members. This is why we should engage in activities that are of interest to us, our friends, our families. These need not be expressly political. Vaclav Havel, dissident thinker, gave the example of brewing good beer. Insofar as we take pride in these activities and come to know others who do so as well, we are creating civil society. Sharing in an undertaking teaches us that we can trust people beyond a narrow circle of friends and families, and helps us to recognize authorities from whom we can learn. The capacity for trust and learning can make life seem less chaotic and mysterious, and democratic politics more plausible and attractive. The anti-communist dissidents of Eastern Europe, facing a situation more extreme than ours, recognized the seemingly non-political activity of civil society as an expression and as a safeguard of freedom. They were right. In the 20th century, all the major enemies of freedom were hostile to non-governmental organizations, charities, and the like. Communists required all such groups to be officially registered and transformed them into institutions of control. Fascists created what they called a corporatist system in which every human activity had its proper place, subordinated to the party state. Today's authoritarians in India, Turkey, Russia, are also highly allergic to the idea of free associations and non-governmental organizations. Lesson 16, learn from peers in other countries. Keep up your friendships abroad or make new friends in other countries. The present difficulties in the United States are an element of a larger trend. And no country is going to find a solution by itself. Make sure you and your family have passports. In the year before the president was elected, American journalists were often mistaken about his campaign. As he surmounted barrier after barrier and accumulated victory after victory, our commentariat assured us that at the next stage, he would be stopped by one fine American institution or another. There was, meanwhile, one group of observers who took a different position, East Europeans and those who study Eastern Europe. To them, much about the president's campaign was familiar, and the final outcome was no surprise. Ukrainian and Russian journalists who sniffed the air in the Midwest said more realistic things than American pollsters who built careers on understanding the politics of their own country. To Ukrainians, Americans seemed comically slow to react to the obvious threats of cyber war and fake news. When Russian propaganda made Ukraine a target in 2013, young Ukrainian journalists and others reacted immediately, decisively, and sometimes humorously with campaigns to expose disinformation. Russia deployed many of the same techniques against Ukraine that it later used against the United States while invading Ukraine. When Russian media falsely claimed in 2014 that Ukrainian troops crucified a small boy, the Ukrainian response was rapid and effective, at least within Ukraine itself. When Russian media spread the story in 2016 that Hillary Clinton was ill because she mentioned an article on decision fatigue, which is not an illness, in an email, the story was spread by Americans. The Ukrainians won and the Americans lost in the sense that Russia failed to get the regime it wanted in its neighbor, but did see its preferred candidate triumph in the United States. This should give us pause. History, which for a time seemed to be running from west to east, now seems to be moving from east to west. Everything that happens here seems to happen there first. The fact that most Americans do not have passports has become a problem for American democracy. Sometimes Americans say that they do not need travel documents because they prefer to die defending freedom in America. These are fine words, but they miss an important point. The fight will be a long one, even if it does require sacrifice. It first demands sustained attention to the world around us so that we know what we are resisting and how best to do so. So having a passport is not a sign of surrender. On the contrary, it is liberating since it creates the possibility of new experiences. It allows us to see how other people, sometimes wiser than we, react to similar problems. Since so much of what has happened in the last year is familiar to the rest of the world or from recent history, we must observe and listen. Lesson 17. Listen for dangerous words. Be alert to the use of the words extremism and terrorism. Be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. Be angry about the treacherous use of patriotic vocabulary. The most intelligent of the Nazis, the legal theorist Carl Schmitt, explained in clear language the essence of fascist governance. The way to destroy all rules, he explained, was to focus on the idea of the exception. A Nazi leader outmaneuvers his opponents by manufacturing a general conviction that the present moment is exceptional, and then transforming that state of exception into a permanent emergency. Citizens then trade real freedom for fake safety. When politicians today invoke terrorism, they are speaking, of course, of an actual danger. But when they try to train us to surrender freedom in the name of safety, we should be on our guard. There is no necessary trade-off between the two. Sometimes we do indeed gain one by losing the other, and sometimes not. People who assure you that you can only gain security at the price of liberty usually want to deny you both. You can certainly concede freedom without becoming more secure. The feeling of submission to authority might be comforting, but it is not the same thing as actual safety. Likewise, gaining a bit of freedom may be unnerving, but this momentary unease is not dangerous. It is easy to imagine situations where we sacrifice both freedom and safety at the same time when we enter an abusive relationship or vote for a fascist. Similarly, it is none too difficult to imagine choices that increase both freedom and safety, like leaving an abusive relationship or emigrating from a fascist state. It is the government's job to increase both freedom and security. Extremism certainly sounds bad, and governments often try to make it sound worse by using the word terrorism in the same sentence. But the word has little meaning. There is no doctrine called extremism. When tyrants speak of extremists, they just mean people who are not in the mainstream, as the tyrants themselves are defining that mainstream at that particular moment. Dissidents of the 20th century whether they were resisting fascism or communism, were called extremists. Modern authoritarian regimes, such as Russia, use laws on extremism to punish those who criticize their policies. In this way, the notion of extremism comes to mean virtually everything except what is, in fact, extreme. Be calm when the unthinkable arrives. Modern tyranny is terror management. When the terrorist attack comes, remember that authoritarians exploit such events in order to consolidate power. The sudden disaster that requires the end of checks and balances, the dissolution of opposition parties, the suspension of freedom of expression, the right to a fair trial, and so on, is the oldest trick in the Hitlerian book. Do not fall for it. The Reichstag fire was the moment when Hitler's government, which came to power mainly through democratic means, became the menacingly permanent Nazi regime. It is the archetype of terror management. On February 27, 1933, at about 9 p.m., the building housing the German parliament, the Reichstag, began to burn. Who set the fire that night in Berlin? We don't know, and it doesn't really matter what matters is that this spectacular act of terror initiated the politics of emergency. Gazing with pleasure at the flames that night, Hitler said, this fire is just the beginning. Whether or not the Nazis set the fire, Hitler saw the political opportunity. There will be no mercy now. Anyone standing in our way will be cut down. The next day, a decree suspended the basic rights of all German citizens allowing them to be preventatively detained by the police. On the strength of Hitler's claim that the fire was the work of Germany's enemies, the Nazi party won a decisive victory in parliamentary elections on March 5th. The police and the Nazi paramilitaries began to round up members of left-wing political parties and place them in improvised concentration camps. On March 23rd, the new parliament passed an Enabling Act, which allowed Hitler to rule by decree. Germany then remained in a state of emergency for the next 12 years until the end of the Second World War. Hitler had used an act of terror, an event of limited inherent significance, to institute a regime of terror that killed millions of people and changed the world. The authoritarians of today are also terror managers, and if anything, they are rather more creative. Consider the current Russian regime, so admired by the American president. Vladimir Putin not only came to power in an incident that strikingly resembled the Reichstag fire, he then used a series of terror attacks, real, questionable, and fake, to remove obstacles to total power in Russia and to assault democratic neighbors. When Putin was appointed prime minister by a failing Boris Yeltsin in August 1999, Putin was an unknown with a nugatory approval rating. The following month, a series of buildings were bombed in Russian cities, apparently by the Russian secret state police. Its officers were arrested by their own colleagues with evidence of their guilt. In another case, the Speaker of the Russian Parliament announced an explosion a few days before it took place. Nonetheless, Putin declared a war of revenge against Russia's Muslim population in Chechnya, promising to pursue the supposed perpetrators and rub them out in the shithouse. The Russian nation rallied, Putin's approval ratings skyrocketed. The following March, he won presidential elections. In 2002, after Russian security forces killed scores of Russian civilians while suppressing a real terrorist attack at a Moscow theater, Putin exploited the occasion to seize control of private television. After a school in Beslan was besieged by terrorists in 2004, in strange circumstances that suggested a provocation, Putin did away with the position of elected regional governors. Thus, Putin's rise to power and his elimination of two major institutions, private television and elected regional governorships, were enabled by the management of real, fake, and questionable terrorism. After Putin returned to the presidency in 2012, Russia introduced terror management into its foreign policy. In its invasion of Ukraine in 2014, Russia transformed units of its own regular army into a terrorist force Removing insignia from uniforms and denying all responsibility for the dreadful suffering they inflicted. In the campaign for the Donbas region of southeastern Ukraine, Russia deployed Chechen irregulars and sent units of its regular army based in Muslim regions to join the invasion. Russia also tried but failed to hack the 2014 Ukrainian presidential election. In April 2015, Russian hackers took over the transmission of a French television station, pretended to be ISIS and then broadcast material designed to terrorize France. Russia impersonated a cyber caliphate so that the French would fear terror more than they already did. The aim was presumably to drive voters to the far-right National Front, a party financially supported by Russia. After 130 people were killed and 368 injured in the terrorist attack on Paris of November 2015, the founder of a think tank close to the Kremlin rejoiced that terrorism would drive Europe towards fascism and Russia. Both fake and real Islamic terrorism in Western Europe, in other words, were thought to be in the Russian interest. In early 2016, Russia manufactured a moment of fake terror in Germany. While bombing Syrian civilians and thus driving Muslim refugees to Europe, Russia exploited a family drama to instruct Germans that Muslims were rapists of children. The aim, again, seems to have been to destabilize a democratic system and promote the parties of the extreme right. The previous September, the German government had announced that it would take half a million refugees from the war in Syria. Russia then began a bombing campaign in Syria that targeted civilians. Having provided the refugees, Russia then supplied the narrative. In January 2016, the Russian mass media spread a story That a girl of Russian origin in Germany, who had momentarily gone missing, had been serially raped by Muslim immigrants. With suspicious alacrity, right-wing organizations in Germany organized protests against the government. When the local police informed the population that no such rape had taken place, Russian media accused them of a cover-up. Even Russian diplomats joined the spectacle. When the American president and his national security advisor speak of fighting terrorism alongside Russia... What they are proposing to the American people is, in fact, terror management, the exploitation of real, dubious, and simulated terror attacks to bring down democracy. The Russian recap of the first telephone call between the president and Vladimir Putin is telling. The two men shared the opinion that it is necessary to join forces against the common enemy number one international terrorism and extremism. For tyrants, the lesson of the Reichstag fire is that one moment of shock enables an eternity of submission for us. The lesson is that our natural fear and grief must not enable the destruction of our institutions. Courage does not mean not fearing or not grieving. It does mean recognizing and resisting terror management right away from the moment of the attack, precisely when it seems most difficult to do so. James Madison nicely made the point that tyranny arises on some favorable emergency. After the Reichstag fire, Hannah Arendt wrote that, I was no longer of the opinion that one can simply be a bystander. Lesson 19. Be a patriot. Set a good example of what America means for the generations to come. They will need it. What is patriotism? Let us begin with what patriotism is not. It is not patriotic to dodge the draft and to mock war heroes and their families. It is not patriotic to discriminate against active duty members of the armed forces in one's companies or to campaign to keep disabled veterans away from one's property. It is not patriotic to compare one's search for sexual partners in New York with the military service in Vietnam that one has dodged. It is not patriotic to avoid paying taxes, especially when American working families do pay. It is not patriotic to ask those working, tax-paying American families to finance one's own presidential campaign and then to spend their contributions in one's own companies. It is not patriotic to admire foreign dictators. It is not patriotic to cultivate a relationship with Muammar Gaddafi or to say that Bashar al-Assad and Vladimir Putin are superior leaders. It is not patriotic to call upon Russia to intervene in an American presidential election. It is not patriotic to cite Russian propaganda at rallies. It is not patriotic to share an advisor with Russian oligarchs. It is not patriotic to solicit foreign policy advice from someone who owns shares in a Russian energy company. It is not patriotic to read a foreign policy speech written by someone on the payroll of a Russian energy company. It is not patriotic to appoint a national security advisor who has taken money from a Russian propaganda organ. It is not patriotic to appoint a secretary of state, an oil man with the Russian financial interests, who is the director of a Russian-American energy company and has received the order of friendship from Putin. The point is not that Russia and America must be enemies. The point is that patriotism involves serving your own country. The president is a nationalist, which is not at all the same thing as a patriot. A nationalist encourages us to be our worst and then tells us that we are the best. A nationalist, although endlessly brooding on power of victory, defeat, revenge, wrote Orwell, tends to be uninterested in what happens in the real world. Nationalism is relativist, since the only truth is the resentment we feel when we contemplate others. As the novelist Danilo Quiche put it, nationalism has no universal values, aesthetic or ethical. A patriot, by contrast, wants the nation to live up to its ideals, which means asking us to be our best selves. A patriot must be concerned with the real world, which is the only place where his country can be loved and sustained. A patriot has universal values, standards by which he judges his nation, always wishing it well and wishing that it would do better. Democracy failed in Europe in the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s, and it is failing not only in much of Europe, but in many parts of the world today. It is that history and experience that reveals to us the dark range of our possible futures. A nationalist will say that it can't happen here, which is the first step toward disaster. A patriot says that it could happen here, but that we will stop it. Lesson 20. Be as courageous as you can. If none of us is prepared to die for freedom, then all of us will die under tyranny. Epilogue. History and Liberty. In Shakespeare's drama Hamlet, the hero is a virtuous man who is rightly shocked by the abrupt rise of an evil ruler. Haunted by visions, overcome by nightmares, lonely and estranged, he feels that he must reconstruct his sense of time. The time is out of joint, says Hamlet, O cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right. Our time is certainly out of joint. We have forgotten history for one reason, and if we are not careful, we will neglect it for another we will have to repair our own sense of time if we wish to renew our commitment to liberty. Until recently, we Americans had convinced ourselves that there was nothing in the future but more of the same. The seemingly distant traumas of fascism, Nazism, and communism seemed to be receding into irrelevance. We allowed ourselves to accept the politics of inevitability, the sense that history could move in only one direction, toward liberal democracy. After communism in Eastern Europe came to an end in 1989 to 1991, we imbibed the myth of an end of history. In so doing, we lowered our defenses, constrained our imagination, and opened the way for precisely the kinds of regimes we told ourselves could never return. To be sure, the politics of inevitability seem at first glance to be a kind of history. Inevitability politicians do not deny that there is a past, a present, and a future. They even allow for the colorful variety of the distant past. Yet they portray the present simply as a step toward a future that we already know, one of expanding globalization, deepening reason, and growing population. This is what is called a teleology, a narration of time that leads toward a certain, usually desirable goal. Communism also offered a teleology, promising an inevitable socialist utopia. When that story was shattered a quarter century ago, we drew the wrong conclusion. Rather than rejecting teleologies, we imagined that our own story was true. The politics of inevitability is a self-induced intellectual coma. So long as there were communist and capitalist systems, and so long as the memory of fascism and Nazism was alive, Americans had to pay some attention to history and preserve the concepts that allowed them
2: to imagine alternative futures. Hey y'all! <laughs> uh, yeah, the hush. I wanted y'all to hear that on tyranny. Uh, a heavy, heavy read. One that uh, we have to become familiar with if we are to uh, uh, safeguard our uh, democracy here and uh, the. Uh, United States of America. Hey y'all, uh, we're gonna we've got to cut this thing off, y'all. We're about at the end of uh, of the road here this evening. Hey, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening. We'll see you next week, February twenty ninth. Uh, same place, same station. Until then, ciao, y'all.
1: The Hushmo Blackbone. Advocated on your behalf by covering news and events affecting the African-American community. Check us out at the Heisman Black Forum, www.blogtalkradio.com.